Okay, good morning. Well, last time we we got through about verse 31 in chapter 20, and um, we, we chased an interesting rabbit last time. If you weren't here, you know, it, the recordings are always put on a sermon audio. I thought we'd chase another rabbit a little bit, but I want to finish the chapter and then think about um, the rabbit. But it, it, chapter 20 is a history lesson, and um, it, it is fascinating to think about, you know, when, when he gives them their history, it's for a purpose. Uh, and and that is for them to see this long line of of rebellion of idolatry, and he's calling them uh, to to change. It's 591 BC. It's still a few years out before the city is destroyed. There's still a little bit of time to turn around. Um, he dealt with in the in the you know the prior chapter about how uh, you know prior chapters about how. Uh, there was this view that, you know, maybe you're pronouncing judgment on us for what our fathers did. And he's really saying your ancestors and you aren't, aren't any different what you do. But it is interesting. There's a history lesson. Just think about that, how much history is in the Bible. Uh, why is it there? And what is its role in having uh, what Paul will call in Romans 12, a renewed mind? And, uh, and, and, and beyond that, um, is studying history in general. Um, important to having a, a renewed mind. And so we'll, we'll try to talk about that a little bit, but I, I, I want to get the latter half of this um, chapter 20. Um, and, and then I'll just, just looking ahead, you know, I said before, you know, if you look ahead to 21, lots of, of poetry there, but he's going to um, describe in chapter 21 how exactly it is that Nebuchadnezzar will be directed to bring his army to Jerusalem, how God will work in that. He won't make Nebuchadnezzar do it, but he will be very convincing. We'll see how that works. And it gives us some insight into how God can um, allow people to maintain volition, but he can ensure that certain things come to pass if he wants to. Um, so, uh, Israel's restoration, chapter 20, verse 32, um, he's been giving them this history lesson about what they've done in the past, and, and it kind of it comes up to a present day, and, and, and you know, for their day, 30 through 31, with uh, talking about them uh, sacrificing their children, all these terrible things, and for that reason, he's got a repeated phrase at the end of, of verse 31, I will not let you inquire of me. This whole chapter started with the elders coming to uh, Ezekiel, and we have a reason to believe based on prior chapters this was common. They they didn't the people in general were not believing what the man would say, but they recognized that maybe he really was a prophet. There was something about him, and so they would come inquire of him. They wanted God to answer a question through the prophet, and God says, "I'm not going to answer that question," um, and we don't know what the question was. But he gives a different answer to a different question, which is his history lesson. But it, it doesn't end just with destruction. And that's a pattern through all the prophets. They're not just doomsayers. They are, are people who um, speak to current events through the lens of God's word and, and the mind of God. And, and, you know, so they're commenting on current events, but they usually end invariably uh, with a promise of restoration. So verse 32 um, he's describing their heart attitude, the way they think. Uh, when you say, so kind of like in your in your mind, let's be like the nations, like the clans of other countries serving wood and stone. Um, he's describing their desire, and it's always been there, 
Uh, and it was there, you know, we talked about last time how they came out of Egypt, but Egypt didn't come out of them. They brought the the, the Egyptian religious practices with them. And, and even though they have an opportunity in the promised land to be different, they still want to be like the other nations uh, with the idolatry. Uh, he says, so when you say that, when you say we want to be idolaters, what you have in mind will never happen. Uh, he's not going to let them. As I live the declaration of the Lord God, I will reign over you with a strong hand and outstretched arm and outpoured wrath. Um, he is not going to let them continue in the idolatry, which is, has been kind of thematic uh, up to this point in the book. I will bring you from the peoples and gather you from the countries where you were scattered. Understand that, that they, they have not been uh, completely scattered yet. Uh, the the northern part of Israel that we sometimes will call the northern kingdom, or or we you can call it Ephraim. Sometimes in the scriptures called Ephraim, uh, sometimes Samaria, right? That that had fallen to the Assyrians, and a lot of those people were were scattered. They were taken out of the land uh, to other places. Judah will also be scattered. Um, some people were taken away when Daniel was taken, for example, in in around six oh five when Ezekiel was taken in 597, but there's going to be a massive number of people removed from the city, and very few will be left after this destruction. If they, they've they either died or they're taken away, very few survivors are, are really left behind. There's some, uh, and we know that from uh, like the Book of Lamentations. We'll talk about kind of the aftermath of the destruction. So, so he's looking to a future beyond the the, the siege of Jerusalem that's coming in three or four years uh, that will result in scattering them out in other parts of the world. And then over time, they'll, you know, they'll settle there and, and go in different places. He says he's going to bring them back. I hope you see this. This is through almost all the writing prophets. This is thematic, uh, you know, a core central theme of God regathering people, his people, the, the, the Jewish people to the land. So he says, I will gather you from the countries where you were scattered with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and outpoured wrath. So he's, he's going to gather them. Now, we know that, that um, and I think it was 1948 when, um, you know, Israel became a, a nation again in the sense of getting some part of the land historically held, really a fraction of it. Um, uh, President Truman, uh, you know, formally recognized them as a nation. And then the United Nations had been, you know, going back and forth on how they were going to handle this because they knew the Palestinians were there. And this all, you know, gets us to where we're at today. Um, Truman's concern is he thought they, if he recognized them as a nation, they would immediately get attacked by all the surrounding nations. Like he knew then they were always going to have a security problem and he didn't want to have American troops over there to, um, to protect Israel. Uh, but as it turns out, and you can go read this history, you know, uh, a little bit of what you're seeing today um, happened then as, as um, uh, there's a fascinating story about how they built a, a, an air force as it were for, for Israel right then in the, in the 1940s, but, but uh, they didn't get all the land though. And, and certainly the Jewish people didn't all return. So there are those who say, well, this fulfilled prophecy. It, it, it sets in motion events that could lead to some fulfillment of prophecy. But that what, what I just read to you about all the people being gathered there, that hasn't, um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, 
I'm going to read something from uh, Zechariah 2, uh, just to, to show you my point about uh, this, this matter of gathering uh, the scattered people back home being very much a, a theme throughout the prophets. When you read the prophets, you'll see a lot of somewhat duplicative stuff. They won't say it exactly the same way, but it's important because um, these are events that God has said are going to happen. It would be... Um, it's just scandalous, really, if God said these things would happen and they never do. You know, when you when you get a, a view of, of, you know, like a preterist view where everything happened in the first century, you got to deal with these passages. And, and it's difficult to to write them off when they get repeated so many times and to say, well, he didn't really mean it. He meant some kind of spiritualized understanding. Uh, Zechariah 2 Zechariah, uh, other than the book of Isaiah, is the most messianic Old Testament book. I think of Zechariah as the he book of Hebrews in the Old Testament. Um, and chapter two is a vision, a night vision about um, Jesus. And um, listen to, to what he says um, in, in Zechariah two. The, the angel, this is verse three, the angel who was speaking with me, Zechariah uh, has an interpretive angel with him in these night visions who talks to him and helps him understand the vision. So the angel who was speaking to me, he went out and another angel went to meet him. Uh, and he said, run and tell this young man, that's tell Zechariah, the young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and animals in it. And then the declaration of the Lord I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory within it. There'll be a future where, uh, to put it in old, uh, you know, ancient language, Jerusalem needs no walls because Hezbollah in the north and uh, those of the Gaza Strip, Hamas, and, you know, and other enemies, right, just in, in a large sense, all the enemies of Israel cannot, cannot uh, uh, you know, they're gone. They can't attack it. They're not there to do it. And, and Israel will have and Jerusalem will have perfect security because Jesus himself will be a wall of fire around it and the glory within it. Uh, this isn't just the spirit of God. This is going to be Jesus physically present. And listen to what he says next. Verse six. Listen, listen. This is Jesus calling out uh, to the Jewish people of the world. Flee from the land of the north. That's Babylon. Uh, north of them is, is 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 you know I mean is is not not as the city not as the city because the city is more or less east of Jerusalem, but um, it's it's the um, north is where all their enemies come from. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar will bring his armies. It'll tell us in a bit. He'll bring them from the north. Uh, unless you were getting attacked by Egypt, the enemies come in from the north. And in Jesus, you know, at the time of Zechariah, they've been scattered. Zechariah is after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the people have been scattered. And what he's looking forward to is the time when Jesus is, is returned and the people are called back. So he says, flee from the land of the north. This is the Lord's declaration. For I have scattered you like the four winds of heaven. This is the Lord's declaration. Listen, Zion, escape. You who are living with daughter Babylon, see where they're at? Um, for the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies in new translations, says this, in pursuit of his glory, he sent me, not Zechariah. This is a real common misinterpretation of Zechariah. He will say several times these night visions. Uh, he'll talk in the first person. 
Uh, he's not talking about him as the prophet. He's speaking uh, uh, for Christ. Um, in pursuit of his glory, God's glory, he sent me, the Messiah, against the nations plundering you. And hear this familiar passage, whoever touches you touches the pupil, or in the old uh, King James, the apple of my eye. Whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. Jesus is talking when he says that. Uh, it's it's this is Messiah. So so I just wanted you to get this idea though that that um, um, the scattering of the people that results from the destruction of Jerusalem and a future regathering are thematic throughout the prophets. And if Israel has no future, then these promises are all broken. It's it's a real problem. Um, Romans 11 says, in the context of whether or not Israel has a future, Romans 11 says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Um, so I see a raised hand. Go ahead. Yeah, so, sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but it's just so funny that, you know, these things are never by accident. Mm -hmm. We've got somebody in our church that has been taken in by these preterist false teachers. I mean, I would consider preterists to be false teachers. Um, and what you're saying just totally refutes it. And another verse, I, I, I apologize if you're getting to this one, but no, this is the one that says it all. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah 23, 7 through 8. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. So the Lord, just as surely as he brought up the children of Israel from Egypt, he's going to lead them back from the north, as you said, and from all the countries where I had driven them from the diaspora, and they'll live on their own soil. So I think that right there, this whole you know chain of verses totally refutes the false doctrine of preterism, which to me is like biblical illiteracy. I can't believe anyone even holds it because it's so patently false. Yeah. And, and, and there's probably, you know, in, in that passage you read, there's even some uh, some others. I think there's one in Zechariah that's similar. That is um, the return of the people to Israel is viewed as like the second exodus in a sense. Out of Egypt the first time, out of the nations the second time to the land. And it, and it would seem that that will coincide with what I can refer to as the national revival that's prominent in Zechariah 12, where they will look on uh, him as, as um, you know, essentially the only son and, and who, whom they pierced, and Zechariah 13, which says in that day a fountain of, of uh, a blessing will be opened up to them. So, but it seems like revival happens, and then and just to kind of tap off the thought, if, you know, this is information, you know, you or someone on the recording had heard before, when you get to the New Testament, a lot of the Jewish people, right, they don't live in Israel anymore because um, this this return hasn't happened yet. Yes, people did come back, and that's the basis for the book of Zechariah and Haggai, uh, but not that many. Uh, I think the group was like 50,000. Most of the people 
Uh, God blessed them in Babylon from a sense of, of material prosperity. They, they set up, you know, their lives there and they didn't come back. When you get to the New Testament, there are Jewish people all around the world. And you know that because of, for example, um, uh, Acts 2 at Pentecost, Jewish people from these various surrounding nations would still make a pilgrimage when they were able to, uh, to um, come to Jerusalem for the feast. And um, it's interesting that Peter says in 1 Peter, he writes from Babylon, no scholar today. And I mean, you can pick up you know, probably a hundred books on First Peter. I've probably looked through 50. And every one of them says it's not possible that Peter wrote from Babylon. But if you look in Jewish sources, they think he did because there were Jewish colonies all around ancient Babylon. Um, and it's just to say this, um, uh, there were Jewish people scattered in that day. And, and uh, you even see uh, the church as it grows and local churches are planted are reaching Jewish people uh, not only in Israel, but outside of outside of there. And, and it would seem in that context, when that's the reality, that's the lay of the land, if it were the case that God were through with Israel and, and, and the blessings had been turned over to the church, then Romans uh, 9 through 11 should be discarded uh, because that's exactly the issue Paul deals with there. And he's emphatic. Um, you know, he basically tees up the question, is God done with him? God forbid. Uh, you know, and he says in that context, the gifts and calling of God, these promises that were first made in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and they carry through all of this, uh, the, the gifts and in, in, in calling of God are irrevocable. So anyway, just, just and that's a rabbit, but but uh, it's it's so thematic. I wanted you to see that as you read other prophets, look for these recurring themes about a scattering of the people and then bringing them back um, and and uh, permanently to to their to their land. So uh, anyway, verse thirty four back in, in Ezekiel twenty is going to bring them back. Uh, I will lead you into the wilderness of the peoples. Doesn't that sound like Exodus stuff? And enter judgment with you there face to face, just as I entered into judgment with your ancestors in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you. This is the declaration uh, of the Lord. Um, judgment, not deliverance yet. I will make you, and listen to this, pass under the rod. Imagine a shepherd holding a rod, you know, the rod that a shepherd carries. Um, you could think of, you know, I mean, it's a common implement, but you can think of, of uh, I think it's Psalm 23, you know, thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Um, when you get to uh, Zechariah 11, it has some visions that that center around the the rod or the staff of the, uh, and those aren't necessarily the same thing, by the way, but that that uh, it centers around that. So a common imagery of the shepherd with the rod, and it's like the the people are going to go single file, and he's going to say, "This one's mine, this one's not." So watch this. I will make you pass under the rod. And will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Uh, now, this covenant, the, the real theological question is, which covenant? I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Uh, as the Jewish nation, they already had the covenant of Moses. This seems to be something new. I think several times Ezekiel is talking new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah is very explicit. When you get to like Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 31. 
Uh, Ezekiel will be explicit at some point, but right now he just says the covenant contextually. This is looking future, I think, and I believe this is a new covenant passage. And God with his rod is going to bring people into the covenant and, and it seems exclude others. I will purge you of those who rebel and transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they live as foreign residents. This is that theme again about regathering them, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He's going to um, uh, have these sheep separated so that uh, only some of them get to enter his protection. Um, that's the picture drawn here. It's, it's uh, you know, looking at, looking at um, I think, his people at Israel, and some of them are going to be permitted to come back uh, into the land. And I think it's eschatological. I think these are going to be the ones that have accepted Christ, and they're coming in under the, uh, under the new covenant. Um, this also, again, you'll see hints of this in different parts of the prophets and uh, especially in uh, in Zechariah and, of course, in the New Testament. Right. But but in Zechariah. So verse 39, as for you, house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says, go and serve your idols, each of you. But afterward, you will surely listen to me and you will no longer defile my holy name with your gifts and idols for on my holy mountain. Israel's high mountain, the declaration of the Lord uh, God uh, is saying this, there the entire house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. Now, has that happened? That's the question. You see the problem with verses like this, when you say, you know, if someone says, well, this has already been fulfilled. The entire house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. Well, they're not all in the land. And those who are in the land today you need to understand that most of them uh, are are culturally Jewish. Um, they're they're not Christian, and I mean, there's Christians there, but I mean, generally they're not Christian. But generally, I, I would argue they don't even view the Old Testament as the Word of God in the way that we would, being that you know it's true. Um, I hope that make makes some sense to you. Um, However many people who are, 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 are in Israel today that are Jewish who maybe still, you know, honor their Judaism and, and read Torah and stuff, the fact is um, it ain't all the people in the land and, and they're not all serving me because they haven't all come to Christ. Uh, to, to try to find fulfillment of these prophecies in the past uh, is impossible, and it leads those who don't like the idea, or, or you know, or just they don't think there's going to be a future uh, for Israel. It leads them to have to interpret these in a way that's not a plain sense interpretation. Um, but how how could it possibly come come to pass that the entire house of Israel, all of them, would serve God in the land? What events would have to happen? For that to be true, what do you think? Well, the tribulation is going to have to happen first, mm -hmm. and the tribulation will wipe out. Was, Dean was teaching this the other night about two thirds of the Jews, and yes. the final third are going to. Well, I don't know the exact amount, but that's what he said. Um, and the final group that's left will be the ones that partake of the fulfillment of all of the promises and in the millennium 
Yes. They'll walk into the millennium. Will it be Absolutely. the destruction of the temple? I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Don. Will, will it be the destruction of the temple that brings them to? I, I think I think it's it's a confluence of of several factors, right? We we know, um, as I say, we know. I mean, my interpretation of Daniel nine is that um, there's going to be a seven year period with some sort of peace treaty uh, that's going to be broken in the middle. It, it seems uh, that that there will be a, a temple of some sort that's constructed in that time, and it is um, whether or not it's destroyed, it's it's defaced in some way, it's profaned in some way. Uh, Jesus calls it the abomination of desolation in, in Matthew twenty four. So I think I think that will happen. I, I don't know that that's what will will maybe it will influence them actually i mean I, I don't know for sure it seems like that could play a role um you're going to have the two witnesses in the book of revelation that do things like moses and elijah and people kind of debate who exactly they are but the fact of the matter is i think they're going to uh influence the people uh as as prophets of god they're going to point them to christ i, I think they're going to talk about the death and resurrection of christ they themselves will be publicly uh, murdered and they themselves will be uh, visibly resurrected. And then you have the 144,000 and, and, and probably even um, uh, some Christians around the, the world, that people that will become Christians in the tribulation uh, period, that may also be an influence. So it's it's a lot of things. And then, and we can't overlook it, and this was the, the, the point that was just made, uh, because uh, Dean totally agrees with me. <laughs> I mean, I think he's right. Uh, in, in Zechariah 13, he says that on that day, and that day is, is really looking to the future, what we would call the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. On that day, a fountain would be, would be open for the house of David. Uh, and, and, and he talks about in Zechariah 12, 10, uh, then I will pour out my spirit. Uh, I think there's going to be a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will, that will be somewhat like what we see in Acts 2. Um, and you, well, how do you know that? Well, besides these two verses, read Joel chapter two. Uh, Peter quotes Joel two in in in, uh, in Acts chapter two, but he doesn't say it's fulfilled. There's people saying this is some weird stuff that's doing, and he's like, "Look, guys, if you'd read Joel two, there ain't nothing weird at all about this. These are the kinds of things you expect to see when there's this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit." And 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 so Joel two is is a passage that will be uh, fulfilled. In, in the tribulation, and there will be this pouring out of the Spirit. So I don't want to overlook that as, as another reason why there's this revival. And then I just was going to mention to Dean's point about the one-third, two-thirds. Uh, that's right out of Zechariah 13. Um, in the whole land, Zechariah 13, 8, two-thirds will be cut off and die, but a third will be left in it. I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. Listen to this. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. This is the remnant, the one third that that when Zechariah is talking about a group going under the rod and then getting to enter the land, that's who it is, I think. Just again, kind of putting scripture to scripture. Um, that's what's happening here. So uh, this is how you can have um, um all of Israel in the land serving God. And, and when you read uh, a chapter like uh, Zechariah 5, 
you'll you'll see how during that time the land is going to be cleansed of of any uh, evil, any false prophets, um, you know that that sort of thing. And when you look in Romans eleven, Paul will make the the statement, "All Israel will be saved." He's talking about a, after the refining, this this remnant that's left, the whole thing, the whole group will be saved. So anyway, just just this is a this is a powerful passage because. Ezekiel 20, like much of Ezekiel, I mean, it, it's a real downer in a way, right? I mean, there's terrible judgments coming, not that they don't deserve it, they do. But it's so important for us to see that um, so that the whole world will know that the Lord is the Lord God, he is going to preserve them, not because they were awesome, uh, but he is going to preserve them. To use the language of Paul in Romans, he's going to graft graft them back in to the blessings at a certain point in time. Um, and and people will have to say only God could could do that. That's why it's it was not possible to uh, to to destroy all the Jewish people. They're 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 gonna they're gonna survive. Um, he says and uh, you know he's gonna purge them of the rebels uh, you know in verse 38 of, of chapter uh, 20 but in verse uh, 39 you know, he says, you know, he's going to bring them back. Uh, for on my holy mountain, verse 40, Israel's high mountain, the entire house of Israel, all of them will serve me in the land. Uh, I will accept them. I will require your contributions and choices, gifts, all your holy offerings. When I bring you from the people and gather you from the countries where you've been scattered, I will accept you as a pleasing aroma. And I will demonstrate my holiness through you in the sight of the nations. That never happened. They have never had um, for any sustained period, right? There's been periods where there were high high water marks for the for the Jewish nation. But think about this. Go back to Genesis 12. You know, you're going to be a this this nation that comes from you is going to be a blessing to the world. Uh, in part, that that is fulfilled in 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 you know Christ's first coming. But at this point in time. He says, I'm going to demonstrate my holiness through you in the sight of the nations. What a powerful statement. And this, this gets us to that point in time where there's a kingdom and, and Christ is back and, and these people um, uh, are, are holy. Why are they holy? Uh, because this doesn't, these aren't like resurrected believers necessarily. These are just people in the kingdom. Why are they holy? Uh, because it's the new covenant and these new covenant blessings from Jeremiah uh, that he outlines about putting a, a heart of flesh in you instead of a heart of stone. Uh, nobody will have to teach you because everyone will know the Lord, that kind of thing. Uh, that's why they're going to be holy. I will, When I lead you into the land of Israel, the land I swore to give to your ancestors, you will know that I am the Lord. What a powerful statement. Well, um, so verse 45, jumping up a little bit, is the beginning of chapter 21. And um, and, and so uh, let's just, just pause there, but just know it's kind of a weird chapter break. So here's the question, the, 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 the rabbit to chase a little bit that I think is valuable. Um, what is the role of history? What is the importance or significance, if any, of history? Uh, to to the Christian walk and to um, you know having having a I say it's to say having a renewed mind sounds like it's a completed project so it's not the right way to say it um, but but renewing our mind 
is there a role of history in having a Christian worldview of renewing our mind? Is that I hope the question makes sense. Let me I mean tell me what you think about that. Yeah, I think uh the Bible has a very clear philosophy of history, and that is from if you zoom out all the way. We're going from the old heavens and the old earth that God created Tov Me'od very good. But man, unfortunately, sinned and corrupted it. So it was originally created very good. And man was to be the vice regent and rule over it for God. But he sinned and corrupted it. And now Satan is the ruler of this world. So we're going from the old heavens and the old earth to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. You no longer need the sun. You no longer need the moon. You don't have the sea because that represents chaos. There's no longer any chaos. The sea represents where the Leviathan and the Rahab and the Tanin dwell, which represents Satan. You're no longer going to have any of that stuff. So history is moving from a situation which, and I think this is very good in your witnessing, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Anyone, atheist, liberal, any believer, anyone is going to tell you the world is not the way it is supposed to be. And just the fact that everybody universally knows that, right? I think you can use that in your witnessing. Here's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus Christ is going to be ruling and reigning on planet earth and the curse is going to be lifted and that's going to lead into the new heavens and the new earth which are going to be exactly the way that things are supposed to be um that's a wonderful philosophy of history but the worldly philosophy is history is it's just circular right and you can rewrite it at any time you know we get like all upset that the 1619 project and all these things are rewriting history but the world philosophy of history is that revisionist history. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the victors that write the history, right? The history that we know isn't really true, and there's really no purpose for it, and it's circular, and it's very unsure. That's why we've got um, somebody that we know that actually was in our Bible study for four months that's a Jewish unbeliever um, that is very big on Judaism, but you know, doesn't not Torah observant. And that's back to your previous question. You know, Christians mistakenly think that all Jews are Torah observant and they really know the New Testament, know that, or Old Testament. No, they don't. They know nothing about it, most of them. Very few Jews know anything about scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. But she's like really worried about what's happening in Israel now, right? Because there's no hope. There's no confidence. She thinks, you know, maybe, you know, they could take over Israel and then they'll come over here and kill her and her, her family, right? But as believers, we know what's going to happen and we don't believe that it's all random or all circular or, you know, there was this big bang and, you know, we went from the goo to the zoo to you. And, you know, we got to worry about transhumanism. And, you know, you just as a believer, you have the blueprint. So you don't have to think like that. You can have confidence. It's a far superior philosophy of history. But Hudson, like she's mm -hmm. saying to us that 
there's an increase of 488% anti-Semitism right now. What do I think about that? And what do I say about this? And that Christians are being anti-Semitic. Do you do you have any thoughts on how to answer this? There is like an a hysteria. I have at least four people that are Jewish that are contacting Judd and I all the time. They're really worried about their even their stance in the United States. Well, I I, I think they should be worried uh, because the the anti-Semitism was always high. It always has been. We know that from from the scripture. This is kind of what what uh, you know. Just talking about the the philosophy of of history. When you see the cosmic proportions to history, that there's more in history than just the human players that we see on the stage. Um, God has Christians in the White House right now uh, in various places, whether we know about it or not. And you read about any presidential administration, you'll find that out. Satan has players there too. Uh, and that's the part the world kind of denies. But uh, what you're seeing now is what, I mean, I frankly have known was there for a long time in our country, um, that that the anti-Semitism is, is high. I don't think that it's particularly high among Christians. I think it's there sometimes, but I think there's a great many Christians, particularly those who are dispensational. Um, however, the way Jewish people often interpret that is, you know, it's not that you care about Israel. You're just, you know, you want to convert us and, you know, you whatever, that kind of thing. Um, but but I think, you know, if you look in history, uh, for example, just going back to, you know, that's one thing. There's such a there's such a, an ignorance of history. You just go back to when the the small patch of land we call Israel today, you know, it, it was not just Jewish people that supported making that a nation. Um uh, over overwhelmingly, the people in the United States supported it becoming a nation because of the positive Christian influence at the time. Uh, even among people who didn't, you know, didn't think of themselves as as as, as Christians, um, there was a, a much stronger influence. And and uh, you know, uh, I just I've heard a lot of. Uh, I think it's a commonly held belief that all Christians are anti-Semitic. I do think there's a history there, though. And a lot of major Christian players, like I've mentioned Martin Luther before, were uh, uh, relentlessly anti-Semitic. And and of course you have, you know, things that happened in 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 history. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but you know, when the Pope way back when uh, attacked Constantinople supposedly to deal with the Muslims there. Um, the city was largely inhabited by Christians and Jews. So now you had the quote church coming in and, and, and uh, murdering Jews. So those things are hard to, to deal with. Um, this, 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 uh, this church, this history is a philosophy and it is important. And, and you mentioned Judd about the 1619 project. Some of you may not have heard about that, but it's, it's a, a writer. I think it's a New York times writer, but you should just poke around at that a little bit. Um, the, the basis for, critical race theory and other critical theories, which is really just Marxism, but we don't want to call it that because that is has a puts a, a bad taste in some people's mouths and, and we're not we're kind of trying to hide that when we pro proliferate communism we in Marxism we want to hide it. Um, but but um, it, one of the things at the heart of of critical race theory is that you don't 
try to defend your position on reasoned arguments and facts. You do it on narratives. And, and then you make the statement that in any event, none of the history we have is reliable uh, because the victors write the history. Well, if, if um, I mean, how is it, though, that you, who are now rewriting it as a narrative in the 1619 Project, how is it that you know it's false, right? Where's your evidence that that that, that the history is false? And, and 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 given you know and, and what qualifies you to rewrite it right I mean it's it's sort of a, a self-defeating thing but a lot of people want to hear that they just want to hear that all that stuff was false um God saw fit to record gobs of history in the scripture and he often calls people to know it uh he's got it written precisely because people want to revise it and the history tells this this epic story that's that's the overriding you know uh, historical umbrella under which all the events we're looking at including those today sit uh and it's like judge was saying you know you you, you kind of start in the old heaven old earth but you start in the garden in revelation uh, 20 21 22 you end in the garden uh as it were the the new heavens and new earth and, and between them we have all this history um a renewed mind is going to not only know bible history but a renewed mind looks at the history of our culture, uh, you know, so that we can understand how our culture has changed. It helps us have discernment. It helps give us a defense against um, accepting um, uh, false, false concepts, false ideas, false philosophies. If we can spot how they've developed and spot the points of departure from biblical foundations, um, uh, in the New Testament, we have the book of Acts, among other things, uh, you know, and then you have even Paul giving some history and, in, in, you know, and you have the Gospels giving some history. So I'm just saying it's just something to chew on about the role of history, including us as, you know, those in the United States studying some of our own history and trying to get into some original sources, listen to some things people wrote contemporary, contemporaneously at the time, not just what maybe a historian today says about it. Um, you can see the movement. You can see the tide rolling, rolling in or out, and 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 that helps you look at our current culture and and have a Christian discernment. The sense of Hebrews five, they had their senses exercised. Those who eat meat to discern good uh, from evil. So anyway, that's my point about history. God, for some reason, repeatedly gives history. History must be important. And if that's the case, wouldn't you expect Satan to try to revise it? 1619 Project, and that's certainly not the first. Um, we would expect that. And now we can see when we see people revising history and exchanging history for narratives, we know that Satan's actually behind that. Um, this is this is important. Um, so well, let me stop there. Uh, stop recording.